We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. March is here. The days are getting longer. It's almost like life before 2019. Here's Scott Thompson. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton today. Will Weber is on the board. You know, I, I thought this was apropos. Come on. Uh, yesterday, restrictions have lifted. Uh, there's uh, full capacity, uh, ma- not mandatory vaccine passporting anymore. It's up to you. So come on, a little love and touching and squeezing, a little getting together. I'm sec- Next, I'm going to ask for a big, wet, sloppy kiss. It's incredible when you stop to ponder it. But don't for too long and get that mask back on because we're not completely out of the woods. But man, uh, yeah, feel free to. And you know what? Perhaps in the world. Uh, we need maybe that's why we're feeling the way we are maybe that's why there's the conflict the division in the world because it's been two years since we hugged because it's two it's two years since the love and the touching and the squeezing and all that sort of stuff so maybe you know a little uh, tip from journey and, and maybe that's the way to go moving forward you know hold your breath you know go in make sure well first of all get consent Make sure you're allowed to hug the person you're about to hug. And then, you know, just like when you were a kid and you were, uh, you know, diving down into the deep end to get the puck. And, you know, hold your breath. Maybe close your eyes and go in and get that hug. And then when you're finished, you can exhale, you know, face outwardly when you're speaking moistly. Maybe just a thought. All right. Uh, it is uh, Wednesday. We're halfway through this week, uh, which is probably a good thing considering. Beautiful day, though. Uh, nice mild temperatures out there. Uh, and speaking of restrictions, the, yesterday's poll question of the day, uh, with the restrictions being lifted, how are you feeling about it? Uh, 44% said a little nervous. Uh, 39% said great, finally. So uh, there you go. And today's, what are you worried about? Interest rates. Uh, the Bank of Canada interest rate has gone up. We'll talk about that in a sec. Are you more worried about rising? Rising gas prices, interest rate hikes, or higher inflation. And right now, 56% of you are running with the higher inflation. And as I mentioned, uh, the news coming out of the Bank of Canada today is the bank rate is up 2.5%. Uh, also, gas prices. Uh, woo, Nelly! <laughs> yeah, 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 they're going up too. And uh, a substantial jump uh, this week. All right, and then when you look at what's happening in Ukraine, uh, more of the same as we're into day seven. Uh, the big news, I guess, is the UN has approved uh, a resolution demanding Russia withdrawal from Ukraine. Uh, oddly enough, China has abstained from that vote. So overwhelming support from the United Nations uh, to demand that Russia withdraw from Ukraine. Uh, obviously, that's not really being met with much um, uh, 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 attention from Russia. Um, the president of Ukraine looking for the no-fly zone over Ukraine, but in that would theoretically tr- uh, trigger World War III. Many are wondering uh, if we should get one step ahead of this, and we'll have those discuss- uh, discussions coming up a little later on as well. Also, uh, about two. Uh, 
last report we have earlier on today, 2,000 Ukrainian civilians uh, have been killed. And these numbers are just uh, astounding in the sense that almost a million people have left Ukraine and fled to the West, mostly going in through uh, Poland and uh, the western part of uh, border of the country. Uh, right now, obviously, uh, Russia continue, uh, Russian military continuing to surround uh, Kiev and their ports. There's talks of those peace talks getting back together again, but nothing really more uh, uh, of uh, substantial information coming out about that or when those could possibly be held. So uh, that's where we are right now as far as uh, the world and Russia and uh, Ukraine hanging on for dear life. Uh, and we'll talk more about this coming up uh, a little later on on the show. Also this hour, uh, Workforce Planning Hamilton has, has launched a new uh, online initiative uh, for those looking for employment. It's a pretty cool idea. We'll tell you about that coming up a little later on. Also, last night, did you watch uh, U.S. President Biden's uh, address, uh, State of the Union address? Come on. What were you watching? You know, you can watch Ozark anytime. Uh, anyway, so uh, I, I certainly watched the first part of this and um, and listened to him chat about Ukraine. And uh, my goodness, it was a pretty strong speech um, as far as the world and Ukraine's response to uh, uh, the Russian invasion and certainly where the U.S. stands uh, on this. And then they went into, or then he went into rather, uh, what the State of Union is really about, which is what he's been doing since he was elected in the last year and, and where he sees this all moving forward. And uh, boy, it almost sounded like a Republican. Um, it, it's interesting because listening to Joe Biden makes uh, Justin Trudeau seem like he's the head of the NDP uh, because he was talking about uh, building um, back America, uh, infrastructure, roads, bridges, uh, steel, and he was really pushing home the Buy American uh, theme. That came up several times in his speech last night. What does that mean to Hamilton? Specifically, what does that mean to the Hamilton steel industry? We'll have that uh, conversation coming up a little bit later on as well. And of course, the NHL game, uh, outdoor NHL game at Tim Hortons Field is fast approaching. How do you take uh, Tim Hortons Field and make it into an official NHL rink? We'll find out. Uh, and I have a feeling it's a little bit more complex than uh, out the backyard with a few boards and a great big piece of plastic. Uh, we'll have that conversation coming up a little later on as well. Also, talk to the Red Cross and how you can help uh, Ukraine and some of the other different ways that uh, war is fought during this uh, age uh, meeting 2022, and that is cyberspace. We'll talk about that and some of the hacks that have been going on. As I mentioned a little earlier, also interest rates uh, have jumped. We'll talk to Ian Lee about that and what it means for Canadians moving forward. Just a sample of what we're going to be talking about this afternoon. Hope you hang around for it. Over the course of this global pandemic, over the last uh, two years now, uh, we've talked a lot about how it will change the world coming out the other end of this. And uh, obviously what we've seen is a a major shortage of labor, lots of jobs, uh, but unfortunately at this point not many people willing to fill them uh, or not perhaps the right job for them. And as well, we're, we're hearing that uh, post 
pandemic, endemic, you're going to see a lot of people, uh, almost like a mass exodus, as people th- you know decide whether their career is going in the right direction or not, perhaps want to take a different direction. Uh, and all it takes is something to stop the world like a global pandemic to make us re- reevaluate uh, where we want to go moving forward in life. Uh, and obviously, uh, changing occupation is a big part of that. Uh, Workforce Planning Hamilton has launched a new online initiative to match those seeking employment with the right jobs available in this city. To talk more about all of this, uh, Khadija uh, Hamadou is with us, Executive Director, Workforce Planning in Hamilton, and with us now. Khadija, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much, and I am doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing good so far. Can't complain. So tell us what Workforce Planning Hamilton is all about. Absolutely. Um, So Workforce Planning Hamilton is a local community planning organization that builds solutions to labor market issues by engaging stakeholders and working with our partners in the Hamilton region. Uh, So our vision is really to lead the conversation in workforce development and provide evidence-based analysis um, by engaging a broad range of labor market stakeholders. Uh, So it's been really great uh, being a part of this organization and really leading this conversation in uh, the economy in the Hamilton region. And we hope to really transform our local labor market um, into workforce planning solutions that contribute to a prosperous and diverse Hamilton community. How has going through a global pandemic changed all of this or even sped it up? Uh, So one of the biggest things that we've really, um, very much like all organizations right now, we have created this hybrid um, hybrid connecting workforce. So we are working from home. We are also working in the office. um, But one of the major things that we've been able to develop uh, throughout the pandemic is our up and new 2022 website. So it's very much a reflection of, you know, what our current standing is right now with being in the digital marketing field and really being able to connect on social media and all just very much online presence. So we wanted to develop a new website that really focused on that and really focused on that presence on the online world. What is the objective of this new uh, initiative, of this new website? What exactly are you planning to do better than you were doing before? So we really want to engage our um, employment opportunity uh, providers and our community partners in an engaging and demonstration of Hamilton's new and largest job board. So we so it's called the We Data Tools. So we have Workforce Planning Hamilton, and then within that, we have the We Data Tools, um, where we're going to be able to really have Hamilton's largest job board to connect all of the job postings that are coming from the Hamilton region into one centralized location. Um, it's been really great at seeing the development of this. It was actually an initiative created by Workforce uh, Windsor-Essex, which is a part of our Workforce Planning Board as one of our partners. Um, and uh, it's been a really great initiative across all planning boards in Ontario. So we have also adopted that uh, mindset. But the ultimate goal uh, for the data tools and on our workforce planning Hamilton is to help um, have a centralized location for Hamilton job seekers, employers, employment coaches, and our funding partners, the government of Canada and the government of Ontario, and having an easily accessible and interactive website for labor market information and workforce talent. So we just really want to have that centralized location where everybody in the Hamilton region can connect to their HRs, um, the HSR 
routes, regarding their job opportunities. We know that, you know, even transportation is a huge key regarding employment, uh, career laddering, seeing what the other opportunities are in the Hamilton region and how you can connect to the current role that you're in um, and seeing what else is out there. So it's just a really great and uh, really interactive way to find job solutions and job opportunities. Boy, this is really bringing down the silos, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. It's all about career development and all about understanding where you want to go next. And that's what our website is all about. And it's here to help with all everybody that's in the employment field, anybody who is job seeking at this point, it's here to help you. And what's great is that it's the map of Hamilton. So it's very familiarized to Hamiltonians. Uh, And that was my next question is who would be using the service? Is there somebody that's specifically geared towards? It is, like I said, it's all for Hamiltonians at this point. So that's why we always love to to market it as Hamilton's largest job board. It's anybody who is in the Hamilton region. And even if you are in the Hamilton region, it's for everyone. Even if you are commuting from Toronto to Hamilton um, and in the larger Horseshoe region, uh, if you are looking for a job in the Hamilton region, this is where you want to go because it connects you to everything that is in the Hamilton region. So from Stony Creek to Ancaster to Dundas to Hamilton West, it's just all over, but it really highlights every opportunity possible in the Hamilton region. Khadija Hamadou with us, Executive Director of Workforce Planning Hamilton. If people want to find out more, where do we go? You can check us out on Instagram at Workforce Planning Hamilton, our new and upcoming website of 2022, www.workforceplanninghamilton.ca. And we are maybe getting a TikTok soon, so check us out on there as well. Khadija Hamatu with us, uh, Executive Director, Workforce Planning Hamilton, breaking down the silos and putting people in touch with uh, the jobs they're looking for. This is a great idea. Good luck moving forward. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you, and have a great day. The United States. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The United States Department of Justice is assembling a dedicated task force to go after the crimes of the Russian oligarchs. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We're coming for you, ill-begotten gains. And tonight, I'm announcing that we will join our allies in closing off American airspace to all Russian flights, further isolating Russia and adding additional squeeze on their economy. Very powerful and very uniting speech uh, at the very beginning of all of this. And it was great to see uh, America and, and, and certainly everybody standing up and, and cheering at the same time and uniting in that form, although that was certainly limited. Uh, let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. So uh, obviously uh, very powerful out of the gate and uh, in the first half of Ukraine, the second half more domestic. Uh, can this unite the United States or is conflict or will conflict bring the United States together? I mean, it, it, it can it can mend a, a political rift, at least uh, as so far as foreign policy goes. Uh, I mean, look, for, for a significant part of that uh, you know, speech that President Biden made at the very beginning, talking about 
uh, the situation in Ukraine, uh, explaining to Americans the gravity of the situation and why something happening thousands of kilometers away has an impact in their backyards. Uh, you know, you saw that there was a bipartisan round of support by via applause for how the president uh, is handling the situation and pushing back on President Putin, along with standing with uh, the Ukrainian people. So there is an opportunity here uh, for the president to seize on bipartisanship. Uh, but outside of foreign policy, it may still be um, a difficult task. So are the Republicans, is it safe to say, united with Biden on his approach to all of this? Uh, the majority of Republicans uh, are on on side with what President Biden is doing. Leading Republicans in the Senate and the House appear to be signaling support for how uh, the White House is moving forward and trying to apply maximum pressure on the Kremlin uh, to get them to slow down or, or pull out uh, of uh, of Ukraine. Uh, you know, there is always going to be a fringe part of the party that that is not falling in line with what President Biden is doing, no matter what the situation is. Uh, but broadly speaking here, there is just bipartisan support, uh, maybe not so much to be standing with President Biden, but to be standing with the people of Ukraine. Uh, does this seem to be the whole Ukraine situation? Does it seem to be getting the attention of Americans or are they still busy, uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic and everything else that's going on in the world? I mean, look, domestic crises in this country are obviously top of mind for uh, the average person, whether it is, you know, the, the pandemic or the coming out of the pandemic or the fear of what could come next, uh, along with inflation. Uh, that partly because Republicans really try to drive home a message that inflation is due to uh, the agenda and costs associated uh, with the Biden administration. Uh, nonetheless, there is still you know, a general worry here that something could go wrong, especially with the rhetoric that came up recently uh, about the use of nuclear weaponry, which is why you saw the president uh, stand at that podium making an address to a domestic audience along with a more global audience to say, look, America can get through this. It's going to be tough right now, but it will be better in the end. Uh, obviously, once he got into the domestic part of his uh, of his State of the Union last night, he started talking about uh, the American economy and, and building infrastructure and such, and really, really drove home the point of buy American. Uh, does he mean buy North American? Because whenever we hear that up here, we kind of get scared. I mean, look, there's 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 always going to be um, an inward central look at how the you know, whatever the administration is in the United States looks at its own economy by saying, look, we need to kickstart our factories. We need to bring manufacturing back into this country. We need to be able to kickstart the economy with more jobs and have people buy American products. That obviously creates a bit of a jitter, a bit of a worry or concern when it comes to, uh, you know, the longstanding trade partnership between Canada and the U.S., which is, you know, sometimes rocky, sometimes tumultuous. It doesn't always go uh, as planned. I don't think that we're see you know, seeing the, the administration is signaling uh, intent to cut Canada out. There are still obligations under uh, the revised NAFTA that that uh, that that require, um, you know, kind of a bilateral and trilateral approach to certain mm -hmm. things when it comes to trade. I think that this is just a president who understands that the economy is such a big deal uh, for Americans right now, be it jobs, be it money, be it inflation, that he has to focus on on Americans and say, look, I'm out for you. I'm here for you. And I have your back. Uh, he talked about Ohio as well and actually used the term Rust Belt and how he hoped that nobody would use that term anymore uh, and, and was talking about it be, becoming the next Silicon Valley. Anything you can add to that? 
Uh, I mean, you know, it, it depends on how the administration is, is simply viewing it. I mean, how, whatever they're choosing to say or how they want to, you know, use vernacular around a part of the country, that's what the, the administration uh, is going to do. I think, you know, this is just kind of a broader push to tell, uh, you know, America as a whole that, you know, it shouldn't be fragmented. Don't be looking at one area of the country and say that's all that area is able to do. That, you know, a blue collar country or blue blue collar area can only be a, a blue collar area trying to capitalize on the fact uh, that there are, you know, emerging economies around uh, the country. Uh, but that's also a ploy to, to try and pull in support uh, throughout Ohio, which uh, can oftentimes uh, make or break uh, a presidency in uh, in an election. Uh, so, you know, it, it's just this was a president speaking to a country trying to make it seem like he was speaking to individual neighborhoods on their own. What about energy policy and and self-sufficiency for the United States? Um, obviously, uh, may, you know, pointing to the fact that uh, Russia is holding the cards for energy for a lot of Europe. Uh, what about reserves and, and uh, a- a- any more on perhaps development within the United States on, on their own uh, natural gas and such? As we, He did talk quite a bit about moving to new energy. Is it all that direction or uh, any traditional? Well, I mean, look, you know, energy comes from a different, a couple of different um, avenues when you're talking about how this administration rolls along. What we didn't hear uh, was a lot about build back better. We kind of heard new phrasing for it to talk about how, you know, there will be energy uh, tax credits that are given out to people. It wasn't really explained in depth to say that this could be a decades long rollout uh, and, you know, the money is not going to be seen up front. Uh, but also, you know, when it comes to energy uh, and inflation costs and how, you know, the the, the crisis in Ukraine and Russia is going to factor into that, uh, the president was trying to say, look, there could be short term pain that we have to suffer because of, uh, you know, going after the oil sector in uh, Russia, which, you know, we just announced today that there would be sanctions on technology linked to Russia's oil sector, which could potentially have a global impact. But that, again, kind of rings back to the conversation that the president was saying in that, you have to have a short-term pain in order to have a long-term gain, and democracy has, um, you know, a price with it, and we have to be able to pay that. So he looked at Americans and said, "Look, things could be expensive. You, we're doing everything we can to get money back to you, uh, and, and you know, energy means jobs. Energy means you know a shift down the road. Uh, it's been rocky for the president to try to roll out this plan, which is why we're seeing it renamed. But ultimately, uh, he thinks that he's got the power to be able to roll forward with this." So overall, do you think this was a positive move, a positive uh, speech for the president, or does this all depend on who you ask? Look, Republicans will say that the president had a D rating on this speech. Democrats will say that the president had an A rating. But it's also worth pointing out that he's facing some partisan pushback within the Democratic Party himself uh, for for not touching on uh, or or diving deep into uh, some of the current issues or spending long enough on them, whether that's, you know, voter integrity uh, or or, uh, rights that are being taken away uh, by uh, by the battle over abortion in the country. Um, You know, this was a a moment for the president to reset where he has been over the last year and restart the country going forward. But with domestic uh, with foreign policy uh, and the crisis in in Ukraine kind of hanging uh, as a shadow, the president did the best he could as a wartime president looking outwards while looking inwards uh, at the same time. No president gets a perfect grade on a State of the Union speech. It all just depends on who's listening and what they want to hear from it. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
You know, you gotta wonder, with an outdoor classic, where is the most tension? Is it on the bench? In the room? <laughs> or is it the people in charge of keeping the ice surface playable and acceptable to NHL play? And, uh, wow, I'm sure by now they've got it down to a science, but still it's mesmerizing when you think about it, uh, that coming up, and it will be uh, March 13th, Leafs and Buffalo, and then the next day, 14th, it's the Bulldogs and Oshawa Generals for an outdoor game at Tim Hortons Field. Uh, the process has started, but how, how do you turn Tim Hortons? Hortons Field into an ice rink. Does everybody on Balsam just roll over with their, uh, you, you know, with the garden hose and say, "Where do we aim?" Uh, let's bring in Mike Craig, NHL Senior Manager, Facilities Operations and Hockey Operations, and with us now, Mike. Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me. Everything's going great. I find this fascinating, Mike. How do you take Tim Hortons Field and turn it into a, a regulation NHL rink? I'm sure it started. What is the first first couple of steps? How do you get started? Yeah, it has started. Everything's uh, going well out there. We got here a couple days ago. Um, our armor deck, which protects the field, is is currently down. Um, we parked our refrigeration truck the other day. Uh, we've actually started running our piping uh, for the refrigeration system down towards the field. Uh, so that's being occurring right now. Uh, next steps from there, we basically uh, build a stage at center where the rink will sit, um, run all of our ice pipes to there, We'll begin loading our ice pans, which becomes our refrigerated floor. Uh, from there, we fill our system, we install the boards, then it really starts to look like a hockey rink at that point. Uh, we basically turn everything on and uh, we start making ice. It sounds so easy. <laughs> no, <laughs> maybe a little bit more to it, but that's, uh, that's yeah, the basics there. So, okay, so you, you obviously cover the field up, and then you build sort of like a subfloor. Is that accurate? And then put run piping through that? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah, so we, we build a stage that uh, the rink actually sits on. That's being built right now. So it's about a foot off the ground. Right. And what that does is really stabilizes everything, make sure everything is perfectly level. And then from there, we actually put our, we call them our ice pans. Uh, they're aluminum pans that hook in series uh, that run across the rink, and that is where our glycol flows through, but actually right. provides the cooling for the floor. So we're able to make the ice out there. So what is actually, what are you actually flooding? What is actually the surface that becomes, that is underneath the ice? So that's, that's what we just uh, referred to there. Those are our ice pans. So they're aluminum okay. plates that get really cold. Uh, and then we spray the water and find mists, and uh, that's what freezes. Uh, so, so basically, you got a slub, a subfloor. You run the pipes through it. You put the uh, plates of aluminum on top per se, and then you just yep. start flooding. Same principle as a freezer and and a typical very rink similar, that you might correct. take your kid yep. to. Yeah, very similar. So, talk about this truck, this unit that you've brought in. What it does? Uh, so it's a full refrigeration package. So basically, all the equipment that you would find it. Any NHL facility, we've taken all those parts and pieces and put it into a 53-foot truck, uh, squeezed everything in there. So all the equipment, all the capacities that we have within an NHL arena, uh, we have right here at Tim Hortons Field. So how long does it take from the day that you arrive with this truck on site and your crew and such to the point where you start making ice? Uh, from that point uh, to begin making ice, we're any. Anywhere kind of six to seven days, and then another 
uh, probably six days or so of ice making uh, and then ready for practices. So within that ice making time uh, is when we paint the ice white, install all of our lines and logos, and then really trim everything up and getting ready for practice day and game day. How thick is the ice surface that they'll be playing on? Uh, so for out here, uh, we're a little bit thicker than we would be in a normal facility. So by the time we're done, we're pre- pretty close to about two and a half inches thick. Really? So uh, one of the biggest challenges, uh, because obviously you've done this a few times now, you've got, I'm sure you've worked some of the bugs out and you've got it down to a, you know, a a craft now, but what is some of, what what is the biggest challenge doing this sort of thing? Is it the weather? You know what? It is the weather, right? You know, every time, uh, you know, that's something that we watch constantly trying to really adjust our production schedule and, and making sure that we're, really kind of, again, watching that forecast and adapting to where we need to, to make sure that everything happens on schedule and we're ready for our practice and game days. And are you concerned at this point, uh, March 2nd, and obviously this is for the weekend of March 13, 14, uh, from looking at where you are now, do you see any challenges moving forward? Uh, Again, we're just, you know, we're watching weather, everything, everything looks pretty good. We got a little bit of uh, warm rain coming on Sunday, which I think we'll be prepared for. Um, but other than that, I think everything looks pretty good in the long-range forecast. We're kind of excited to get things going here. And do you start flooding it initially by hand and then take a Zamboni to it? How does that work? You know what? For outside, we basically do everything by hand. So yeah. uh, everything is done in, in fine mist layers. Um, countless hours are spent out there spraying, uh, which will be just over 20,000 gallons uh, of, of water. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, everything done by hand almost right up until the night before practice where we kind of get everything trimmed out with, uh, our Olympias. And what about the reverse dismantling this thing? How do you do that? Do you just shut it all off and let it nature take its course? What do you do? Uh, you know what? We're actually, uh, to be honest, we're, it's a little bit different. We actually make it as cold as we can, uh, and break the ice out. And then we bring in, uh, skid steers, uh, and different equipment and, loaded out uh, with dump trucks that way and uh so how long would it take you after game day to have this dismantled and nobody knew you were there uh so between our group and uh bam productions who's a production company that that we work very closely with uh we're usually about five to six days load out doors closed and away we go it is incredible how many times have you guys done this now this will be our 35th outdoor game. Oh, so man. we've uh, learned, learned something every time we've done it. And uh, yeah, really excited to, to be here and get this one going. Wow, what a great story. Great to hear uh, what happens behind the scenes to make these great events happen. Mike Craig has been with his NHL Senior Manager, Facilities Operations and Hockey Operations as they turn Tim Horton Field into an NHL regulation ice rink. Fascinating stuff, Mike. Thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Obviously, uh, Ukraine has the world's attention right now as we all watch and and uh, hope for at least some sort of positive outcome. The outreach, the support has been overwhelming, as both the President of the United States has said uh, last night and the Prime Minister echoed uh, earlier on today, uh, including uh, you know the services of those similar to the Red Cross that are doing their best to try to help. Uh, now, it's almost a million people that have uh, been displaced out 
of Ukraine and have made their way into uh, countries that, that border the western uh, portion of the country. So what can you do to help? Let's bring in Kathy Mueller, Senior Advisor, Communications Operations with the Canadian Red Cross and is with us now. Kathy, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks very much, Scott. All right, let's first start, Kathy, by uh, telling people how can they help. If people want to help, donate, what have you, where should they go? Where should they go? What should they do? They should go to the Canadian Red Cross website. So we have launched a Ukraine humanitarian crisis appeal, and it's really easy to donate. Go to redcross.ca. That's the website. There's a very simple phone number to remember, 1-800-418-1111. Or they can text the word Ukraine to the number 20222, and that will donate $10. And we'll ask you for those uh, details again at the end of uh, all of this. Uh, Where does the money go? Somebody donates here. What happens to it? Right. So the money will go directly to the Ukrainian Red Cross as well as to the International Red Cross. And it's to help with relief efforts and the growing humanitarian needs, just not just in Ukraine, but in the neighboring countries as well, because we're seeing this ripple effect. Right. You, you mentioned the million people who have fled the country and they're going into the neighboring countries. So this is shaping up to be one of the largest humanitarian emergencies in Europe and, and not just for today or tomorrow, but for years to come. Uh, You know, in Ukraine itself, an estimated 18 million people are affected. That's one third of the population. So you can imagine the needs are huge. There's a lot of displacement and uh, not just in Ukraine, but outside as well. Uh, My next question, how does this compare to what you've seen in the past? What's different here? What makes this unique? Oh, there are so many different countries that are impacted by the conflict in Ukraine. It's not just the people in Ukraine. And we have teams in the neighboring countries. They're working around the clock to get that much needed, critical, basic humanitarian aid to the people who are um, impacted by by this conflict. So, for example, in, in Ukraine, we have teams who are providing water to hospitals and municipalities so that uh, the the critical services infrastructure and that can can be continued to be provided. Um, In neighboring countries like Poland and Russia and Hungary, our Red Cross teams are welcoming people with that life-saving aid. They're providing things like shelter, food, water, psychosocial support, and critically, SIM cards, not something we really think of too often, but SIM cards, Mm. because families are getting separated, this is one way that they can stay connected. Wow. So obviously, uh, the demand is great. And, and, you know, as you've just stated, what about response? How's the world responding to all of this? Oh, I think we've all seen how the world is responding. And uh, here in Canada, Canadians, we know traditionally when there's a crisis, Canadians step up to the plate and they help. And it's no different this time around. Uh, So far, more than $24 million has come into the Red Cross Ukraine humanitarian crisis appeal. And that doesn't even include the matching funds from the government of Canada. So again, Canadians are showing their, their, uh, their generosity. 
And again, we should mention that that for everything Canadians donate, the federal government will also match that. So is cash king here? Is that what's really needed? And then you can do that to you to do, use that to do the best thing with because uh, we hear some, there's some local churches, agencies and such that are actually, you know, uh, trying to get cult clothing and that sort of thing. But but for you guys, cash is king at this point. Absolutely. The best way to support the Red Cross and the work that we're doing on the ground is to make a financial donations. We, we know that the in-kind donations of food and clothing and other items, people are really well-intentioned and they, they want to help. But just think of the cost that's involved in storing that material and processing and it and transporting it and getting it across you know, that big pond that we would have to go over, right? Um, so the, the financial donation makes sure that it's also meeting the needs of the people on the ground. Uh, Red Cross, obviously a massive organization. How do, you, how do you coordinate this with the rest of the world? How do you coordinate this with the country that needs it? Well, this is something we have been doing for over 100 years. The Red Cross, we are the largest disaster relief organization in the world. So when there's an emergency that's too severe for the local support systems to respond, that's when the global Red Cross response mechanism kicks in. And uh, we just all coordinate really well. We, We There's a lot of communication, obviously a lot of logistics involved. And uh, we make sure to, to try and avoid as much duplication as possible, but also to make sure that there aren't any gaps. And, of course, uh, not their first rodeo. They've been doing it for an awfully long time. Once again, Kathy, if we want to make a donation, what do we do? Where do we go? Sure. So there are three ways. You can go to the website at redcross.ca. They can call the 1-800 number at 1-800-418-1111. Or you can text the word Ukraine to 2222. All right, Kathy Mueller with the Senior Advisor Communications Operations with the Canadian Red Cross, uh, telling you how you can donate to help those in Ukraine and surrounding areas. Kathy, thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward with all this. Thanks so much, Scott. And if you did not get any of those addresses or what have you, go to our website at 900chml.com. We have links to the Canadian Red Cross and other charities that are helping out as well, all on our website at 900chml.com. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots of things to talk about. Carmi Levy with technology analyst and journalist. He is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks. Uh, before we get to what's happening in Ukraine and, and technology and warfare, uh, your thoughts, first of all, on the province announcing Ontario's Digital Platform Workers' Rights Act, which will push for regulations, basic income, etc., for gig economy workers. Is this a start? Where, how does this look to you? It's a pretty significant move. No other province has done this. This is a Canadian first. And, you know, we've been saying for years that gig workers, gig economy workers really lack protections that other kinds of workers take for granted. Uh, So, for example, you know, being fired summarily because you've been locked out of the app, that happens to gig workers all the time. They don't have transparency into uh, what they're paid, how much they're paid for, how much they put in. There's, There's no minimum to what they can make. So they can essentially be exploited by these giant American companies through an app. Uh, which is highly unfair. And, you know, there have been pitched battles in the U.S. about this and different states have enacted their own laws, but north of the border, not a whole lot. So this is, it's not 
ideal. It's not perfect. It still leaves them open to uh, to abuse. Uh, it doesn't address every issue that that has been discussed in recent years, but it certainly is an important first step. Uh, and and I would hope that other provinces would look to the Ontario experience and go, hmm, maybe we should start introducing legislation of our own because whether you're a gig worker or not, I think we all deserve the same kind of protections when we're working. So how how difficult will this be to implement? Uh, quite. Uh, and the reason being is, is you're not, you know, when you're, uh, you know, uh, when you're a government agency responsible for enforcing workers' rights and standards, uh, it's fairly easy to deal with a conventional company to ensure that they adhere to the rules. It's somewhat different when the company that you're dealing with isn't located here, is essentially a giant data center in the U.S. Uh, and really doesn't know or care what happens in this province of Ontario. So uh, Ontario is going to have to, you know, and we don't see a lot of verbiage in the proposed legislation about enforcement. Devil's always in the details when it comes to enforcement. And so Ontario is going to have to really dig deep to ensure that you know the Ubers and 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 others other gig driven companies uh, that rely on these armies of of independent workers um, that they recognize Ontario's authority to to uh, adjudicate those rules and enforce those rules within its borders. This is new territory, global technology providers, but provincial governments. And and we haven't quite seen how that will play out yet. Ontario is really going to have to sharpen its pencils on it. All right, let's talk about the conflict, uh, Ukraine and Russia. Uh, obviously, we're hearing of heavy-duty sanctions being applied to Russia. We're even seeing their oligarchs uh, moving their yachts around so they won't get uh, taken up. But we're hearing that uh, more and more the use of cyber uh, uh, cryptocurrencies rather to get money back and forth. What can you tell us on that? Well, you know, the appeal of cryptocurrency, if you're an oligarch, if you're a Russian who's affected by this, is that it bypasses traditional central bank-based systems. And those are the systems, that's the infrastructure that's being targeted by the sanctions. So if you can't move your your assets or if your assets are frozen within uh, a foreign bank, for example, then, well, just use cryptocurrency because it, it isn't uh, tied to any one government, isn't subject to these sanctions. It sounds great in theory, in reality reality, though, it's kind of difficult. Imagine if you've spent decades, you know, you're an oligarch, you got billions of dollars in assets, all in accounts around the world, in physical assets. Uh, if you, you can't just snap your fingers and convert it all into Bitcoin overnight, mm. uh, the scale of it is virtually impossible to just switch very quickly. And so uh, as, as, as appealing as it might sound to a Russian on the wrong side of these sanctions, truth of the matter is we're not going to see uh, this fluid exchange from traditional assets into Bitcoin or Ethereum or some other cryptocurrency. It just doesn't scale that way any more than if you woke up tomorrow and said, hmm, I'm going to just start doing everything in Bitcoin. It would take you months, if not years, to figure it out and move everything over. And that's time that even if you're an oligarch with billions of dollars at your disposal, you just don't have. Uh, a matter of time before something like that happens, is this a future uh, for this industry? What does this do mean for the crypto industry? Does this tarnish it in any way? 
Uh, well, certainly. I mean, every time we see so-called bad guys using cryptocurrency for whatever purpose, it it sort of it dogs, it hangs on the reputation of Bitcoin. It gives us another reason to maybe we'll stand on the sidelines a little bit longer because it doesn't look quite legit. I mean, if a Russian Russian oligarch is using it, then maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should wait for someone to tell me that it is in fact legit and legal. Um, so this certainly doesn't help Bitcoin's PR problem uh, in any way. Any more than a major security breach or a major mm. uh, heist using Bitcoin or a ransomware attack where Bitcoin is paid uh, prompts the rest of us to, to sort of pull back and go, maybe we'll wait until the dust settles before we decide that crypto is for us. And so this will certainly, I think, slow down interest, uh, the interest of regular folks like you and me. Uh, and I think that makes a lot of sense. There's, It's like a snow globe right now. There's a lot of stuff floating around. I think we should wait until things settle before we decide if it makes sense for us. Obviously, Canada, a land of immigrants, uh, media here for virtually every segment of, uh, of our population, no matter what your ethnicity or your nationality is. Uh, now, Russian propaganda television uh, providers are starting to remove this. Uh, does this matter in, a, in the world we now live in with, with traditional uh, cable channels like this, uh, considering where we are with digital information and such? How significant is this? Uh, from a functional perspective, not very. I mean, we don't get most of our, our information through cable or satellite networks anymore. The television isn't our only window on the world. And certainly if RT disappears from my cable bill or my, my cable offering, I have other ways of finding out what's going on. But I think there's there's a symbolism here is that RT, which is essentially a propaganda tool of the Russian government, um, they're sending a message to the Russian government that, you know what, even if it's a small thing, even if there's very little impact here, even if you, you measure viewership in dozens of people, not millions, um, you know, we're still not going to allow you to have access to our citizens, our markets. And so it's yet another one of those small things. It's like pulling vodka from the shelves mm. of the LCBO. This is you know, booze that's already been paid for. There aren't a whole lot of brands that are affected. It's not a big money thing. Uh, you know, it's basically like a drop in the ocean. But again, you kind of you add it onto the list of small symbolic things that we're doing to draw a line with Russia. Um, and I think it just simply sends a message that you're not going to use your our telecommunications networks to spread your propaganda to our citizens that those days are over and i think it brings us a small amount of self-satisfaction doesn't really change the balance of anything all that much but it's a move in the right direction only got about 30 seconds left here carmy uh watching biden's state of the union last night he talked about creating another silicon valley in ohio building chips manufacturing chips per se your thoughts on that this is huge. I mean, it's 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 half a day's drive from where we are in southern mm. Ontario. So just outside Columbus, on uh, Ohio, they're proposing a twenty billion dollar fabrication plant with research and development which over the past number of decades has moved overseas. Uh, so by bringing this back, we overcome global chip shortages. Uh, we bring a lot of that knowledge back in-house. There's there's much more um, um, opportunity for people to pursue careers in this burgeoning field. Um, you know, again, it's we, we outsourced it decades ago. We're bringing it back in, and it's one of those inflection points in history. We're getting back into the business of making stuff, not overseas, but in our own backyard. And Canada should watch this. We should be attracting the intels to our backyard as well. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist talking about everything uh, that's on the plate today. Carmi, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Really appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. We've been talking about this for a long time, and and, and that being interest rates and the Bank of Canada raising its benchmark interest rate today. Uh, we've certainly been talking about it for a while. We've seen how the pandemic has affected interest rates over the course of the last two and a half years. And obviously, the Bank of Canada sensitive to that uh, as we come out of this global pandemic. And now you add into this uh, world conflict with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. How does that affect all of this as we move forward? And we see uh, the Bank of Canada raising its benchmark interest rate uh, today to 0.5%. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. How do we, we knew that this was coming. We were trying to manage our way out of this global pandemic. Then all of a sudden there's a conflict in the world with, with Ukraine and Russia. How does that affect this decision? Does it, does it make them more cautious? Does it bring it on sooner? Did this, uh, con, or does this conflict have anything to do with the rate going up today? No, but it's going to in the near, very, very near future. So let me uh, unpack the, there's two separate things. There's the, as you just said, coming out of the pandemic and what's been going on in Canada, the last quarter, uh, GDP rose by over 6%, uh, far above what they were anticipating. Uh, the economy is really red, running red hot. Inflation's running higher than they thought. And so, uh, and the Bank of Canada governor, said in a speech very recently that the economy is performing at full capacity and and that's that's a signal because when it's at full capacity it can't provide supply more stuff to people that want it because everything's running full tilt it's like you know the car running as fast as you can possibly drive your car perhaps Mm -hmm. illegally or on a racetrack you can't go above a certain speed limit you can't go above a certain speed because the car can only is only built to go so fast well, the economy, when it approaches full capacity, it just can't go any faster. So what happens is people start beating up prices to try to get scarce goods they need. That's the signal for interest rate increases. That's what happened today. Now you overlay on top of that what's going on in the the savage um, uh, policies, the murderous invasion, sorry, but that's what it is, of, in, mm. of Ukraine by uh, Putin and it's going to have a couple of very important consequences for the world economy, including Canada. One is it's driving up energy, as we know, and that means precise, specifically oil. And uh, markets hate uncertainty. And it's not just generalized uncertainty. It's uncertainty about the actual oil, because Russia is one of the three largest producers of oil in the world. And so if that oil gets cut off because they choose to cut off Europe or because Europe decides to cut Russia off uh, by uh, uh, cutting off their cash flow, that will reduce, that will create a shortage and imbalance in uh, supply, global supply and demand that will push up prices too. And so I will not be shocked in plain English, uh, plain blunt forecasting, if I could put it that way, I would not be shocked if I see, if we experience uh, gasoline at the pumps by end of April, May at $2 a liter. I will not be surprised. I'm not saying it will be there, but it, I won't be. Then the second variable, uh, Russia and Ukraine are very, very large uh, grain producers. Roughly a third of the exports in the world come from those two countries. So if the, the, uh, the savage bombing by Russia 
of roads and railroads and infrastructure prevents Ukrainian grain exports to get to market. And we don't allow the Russians because of all of the sanctions on them. Um, uh, very, very draconian sanctions don't allow the grain to get to market. This will create shortages of grain products, which in turn will put upward pressure. So where I'm going with this is, is that in the next several months, the pressure on prices outside from increasing oil prices and increasing grain prices are going to push up uh, food inflation significantly. Do you see this changing uh, Canada's energy energy policy in any way or even the energy policy of the world? I do. I do. Uh, I've been following this like a hawk. You and I have talked about this in the past. I noticed the comments and read the uh, comments only last night after President Biden's uh, State of the Union address, which I did watch, by the way. And uh, the senator from West Virginia, who's a Democrat. But he's a very what they call a blue dog Democrat, a very pro-business. And he's from a coal state. And he said very bluntly, I will support President Biden in the Senate. He said if he announces that energy is national security. In other words, he's calling on President Biden to essentially reverse what's been discussed and tried for the last five or six years, or maybe three or four years. Uh, that is to say the whole drive toward decarbonization and you know downplaying or reducing our dependency on oil and gas. And he's saying, we can't do that. And other independent analysts I'm reading are saying, this is changing everything. This is a global game changer because we've realized the Europeans, especially so, how incredibly vulnerable they are on this one country Russia and how Putin, that emboldened Putin. Many think it gave him the confidence to think that he could go into Ukraine and and do the horrible things he's doing. He thought he could get away with it because Europe is so massively dependent on Russian oil and gas. And so this is I just cannot see how this it cannot be a huge game changer. I'm not suggesting that we'll start denying global warming. It's real. I'm not suggesting we won't yeah. try to mitigate uh, uh, oil and gas uh, carbon emissions. But the idea, I don't just don't think that there's going to be any talk any longer of closing pipelines in Canada. They may even bring Keystone back. We don't know. Uh, I think that the focus is going to be on energy security, which means in plain English, far less Russian oil and gas. To do that, we've got to up the, you know, fracking again, maybe in UK, certainly in the US, more pipelines, more LNG terminals, more LNG ports to ship because Europe doesn't have any oil or natural gas. So it's got to come from Saudi Arabia. It's got to come from Canada. It's got to come from the US if we want to allow or help or facilitate Europe to become independent of Russia. So I think it is going to, notwithstanding the screams of protest from environmental groups, yeah. uh, I think that we're going to see a much uh, heavier e e emphasis on development of oil and gas. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about interest rates increasing and energy uh, self-sufficiency. Ian, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Let's bring in Joshua Tucker, Professor of Politics, Director of the Jordan Center Advanced Study of Russia and uh, Co-Director of NYU Center for Social Media and Politics and is with us now. Joshua, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, thanks for having me on here. It's obviously been a, been a tough week, but I'm, I'm happy to be here to talk with you and your listeners. 
What can you tell us about peace talks? Because we saw this happen earlier on, whether you characterize them as peace talks or not, but some sort of dialogue going on. Then it stopped. It said it was going to start again. There was chatter about it today. Where are we with that? Is this going to happen? I mean, you know, you and I don't know that this is going to be determined by people on the ground. I think the problem is as long as, you know, right now the demands of the Ukrainians, quite understandably, are that they want uh, the rush, the the fighting to stop and they want the Russian troops out of their country. And then they'll talk about longer security concerns. Whereas if the Russians are sticking with their claim that they want uh, that they that their um, their demand here is the demilitarization of Ukraine, it's hard to see how these talks can come to an agreement. Uh, so is this just a lip service at this point? Is this just uh, courtesy? I mean, you never know. I, I think on the one hand, there's advantages to both sides to appear to be willing to talk about peace. Obviously, there is this is a contest in the sort of world public opinion as we watch these votes get taken at the, e, at the, at the United Nations. And we have, you know, reportings of how many people voted with the Russians, how many people voted abstained, you know, so people are, are courting public opinion uh, globally on these issues. And so to be seen as trying to, 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 to want peace is advantageous. That being said, you know, at some point, there is going to have, you know, th- th- there, there may be a situation, there might be a situation where Russia is looking for an off-ramp. And if Russia is at some point looking for an off-ramp, then having t- ongoing talks provides um, a means by which that off-ramp could essentially be extended and also perhaps ways in which it could be, you know, gestures could be made, you know, to make it easier for Russia to to get on that off-ramp. But that's a giant question right now, whether Russia is looking for one or whether they will be looking for one. And even Biden said in his state, State of the Union last night that Russia is becoming more and more isolated. I'm not sure that's a good thing or the bad thing once you start to isolate someone as unpredictable as Putin. Uh, is Do you think they're providing him an off-ramp? Is he looking for an off-ramp? Or is he just going to snap once he sees this isn't going the way that he wants it to? Well, I mean, that's the question everyone talks about, which is like, you know, is he going to escalate? And and we have to think seriously about what escalation can mean, right? There's the almost unfathomable form of escalation, which is to use nuclear weapons against Western cities as a response to, you know, tightening sanctions and and and, ta- and taking those sanctions as a kind of quasi act of war. That seems highly, highly unlikely. It would be the end of of the of Putin's regime. It would be the end of, you know, it would lead to unspeakable tragedy. So then the other form of the other way you could think about escalation is to bring the battle outside of Ukraine. You know, that also seems very unlikely at this point, because he he is in a situation where NATO troops are not engaging. And were he to go into Estonia, Latvia or Lithuania, you know, then then you would undoubtedly expect to see NATO troops engaging. So then when we talk about, you know, escalating, it really is about, you know, what level of violence and how much force you bring to to Ukraine. And there are these horrible, horrible, you know, past examples of what the Russians did in Groznia, which is in Chechnya or in Aleppo in Syria, where, you know, we're talking about massive, massive numbers of of civilian casualties. Uh, So it is it's an absolute dangerous situation. Now, the the off-ramp part is a two-part question. It's like the first is, is he going to be looking for an off-ramp? The second, Mm. which is also a valid one, is like, what could the Ukrainians or the West do at that point to give him a potential off-ramp? And in that respect, 
you know, it seems very unlikely that the Ukrainians would settle at all for Russian troops or staying in their country or demilitarization. So then you get into really kind of, you know, maybe more nuanced discussions about permanent status of neutrality, as well as dealing with these particular two territories in southeastern Ukraine that that declared independence. And maybe that's the direction where an off ramp could head. Talk about the significance of this convoy. Obviously, it's moving slowly. We've seen it increase in size over days. Uh, four cities now being uh, attacked uh, in Ukraine today. Uh, and obviously, this convoy of like 60K long or such. Um, how vulnerable is that convoy? Is that something that that uh, the president of Ukraine is is concerned about? How concerned is he of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear at this point in time that the original goal of the Russians was to march straight into Kiev, decapitate the Ukrainian government, you know, get Zelensky to flee or even, you know, or get him killed or arrest him and then install a puppet government. So Kiev has been a kind of important part of the Russian plan from the beginning. Obviously, nothing has gone according to that particular plan. But when you see the convoy, I think the sort of Occam's razor solution is that the explanation for it is they are still thinking in terms of going in and taking the capital city and seeing what effect that has on the rest of the country. Now, at this point in the ballgame, you know, with so many troops taken up already in getting into the capital city and in the south and eastern part of the country, one can speculate that the government might then move to Lviv, which is in the western part of the country that can be resupplied over the Polish border, set up a kind of government in internal exile at that point. So it, it remains to be seen even whether right now that, uh, you know, getting control of Kiev would, would, would turn the tide the way I think the Russians thought it would originally. Now, the question of why the convoy is moving so slowly has been a subject of a lot of speculation. And we do hear reports coming out from U.S. intelligence sources, which may I add have been remarkably and cannily good over the course of this entire, the lead up to this entire crisis, that there are Russian soldiers who don't want to be fighting Ukrainians. And it's yeah. important to note that, you know, the Russian army is made up of professional troops, but it's also made up of conscripts um, who are not, you know, who are in the army for under a year. And there is some talk about whether or not people are, you know, don't want to be in the business of shooting Ukrainians, who, of course, are, you know, closely related to Russians. And, and indeed, many Russians have relatives in Ukraine. So it is worth thinking about how, how difficult this is on the troops. But ultimately, you know, the Russians are going to be able to move their forces, even if they're forced at this point in time to sort of wait and, and catch up and, and get more fuel and get more food and those sorts of things. So eventually, we, you know, one thinks the size of this convoy is about encircling Kiev, making it, you know, difficult to resupply it, um, if not impossible to resupply it without an airlift. And, uh, and that's probably where we're headed at this point. In terms of vulnerability, I mean, that's a, you know, that's an open question. Everybody knows it's there. Everybody knows where it is. And it has, certainly has been the subject of a lot of discussion. Joshua Tucker with us, professor of politics, director of Jordan Center for the Advanced Study of Russia, co-director NYU Center for Social Media and Politics. Joshua, fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too. Uh, it's been my pleasure. So thanks very much for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, update on uh, where we are. Is there any chance of peace between uh, Ukraine and Russia? There were some talks and they broke off. Let's bring in Oral Brown, professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. He is with us now. Oral, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. 
Uh, today, Arl, uh, the U.N. Uh, approved a, a uh, resolution demanding that Russia withdraw from Ukraine. China abstain from that vote. What is the significance of this vote in the U.N. today? Very little, unfortunately. Uh, the uh, General Assembly does not have the power to pass binding resolutions. Those can be only passed under Chapter 7 of the Security Council. But Russia is a permanent member of the Security Council, and they can veto it. So for all intents and purposes, the UN is toothless. It has, at very best, symbolic value. What is the symbolic value when there's such an overwhelming majority supporting it? It would matter if uh, Vladimir Putin cared about the world opinion. He doesn't. Mm. So I'm afraid I have to be blunt. What matters is what, what is happening on the ground. And the situation on the ground looks very bleak. We just had word that the major city of Kherson, city of about 300,000, a significant port uh, on the Black Sea, has fallen, has fallen to the Russians. And uh, they have made the important progress in the south of uh, Ukraine, moving in from uh, Crimea. It appears they want to build a land bridge that will cut off Ukraine entirely from the Black Sea. Much of Ukraine's trade is uh, done uh, by ship. Uh, it is a maritime uh, trade, and uh, they are the Russians at the same time bombarding uh, at will. It seems uh, using uh, heavy equipment, the capital as well as Kharkiv. They have attacked uh, a university, hospitals. The brutality of the Russian attacks are increasing. And uh, Mr. Biden gave this triumphalist speech uh, yesterday to the State of the Union that historically will uh, be viewed as, I'm afraid, really bizarre, where he basically made the argument that the operation was a brilliant success. However, the patient may be dying. Hmm. Uh, we've heard the term no-fly zone over Ukraine. Many said that that would start uh, World War III. Uh, some have said it's already uh, moving to the starting blocks. Uh, is this something that the West should get ahead of? At this point, it would be highly unlikely. The West now is unified after Ukraine possibly might be mortally wounded. The Germans have made a U-turn, willing to provide armaments when they may not be able to get them in. They do not have control over the air. Trying to create an air bridge would mean a direct confrontation with Russia. And Mr. Biden made it very clear that he is not going to fight uh, Russia in Ukraine. Basically, he said that Ukraine uh, um, is uh, uh, going to have to defend itself and that the Russians have a free hand in terms of direct NATO involvement inside ukraine uh obviously we're at day seven with this many have been noticing and talking about the growing convoy up to 60k long we've heard reports of uh, you know coming into uh, uh uh kiev and such what is the significance of that convoy why has it slowed down are they in a vulnerable position or is this just a waiting game of cat and mouse we just don't know. Uh, it does seem that they have had logistical problems. And the reason we are in day seven is uh, because of the remarkable courage 
of President Zelensky, of the Ukrainian armed forces and the Ukraine, uh, the people of Ukraine. Uh, had uh, Mr. Zelensky followed the defeatist advice of President Biden, which was to evacuate immediately, the Russians would now be very likely in full control. But uh, Mr. Zelensky has managed to rally Ukraine and rally the EU, though it may be too late, but at least uh, Ukraine has a small chance uh, because it is fighting back. It has inflicted significant damage on the Russian invaders. Um, very memorably, you may recall, Mr. Zelensky said to Mr. Biden's administration, I need anti-tank ammunition. I am not looking for a ride. Hmm. Those are memorable words. They were Churchillian. Uh, many have said it once this gets to cities like Kiev that it will be just bloody urban warfare because of the high density of, of, of the population and, and the city itself. Um, with, with Ukraine arming itself, uh, what, what is this going to be like? Uh, do they stand a chance because of just the layout of the city and the fact that this is literally going, unless you're going to go in and literally bomb the whole place into oblivion, uh, you're going to have to go house to house, street to street. The Russians have not been reluctant to, uh, to bomb cities into oblivion. Look what they did in Grozny, in mm. Chechnya. Look what they did in Aleppo and elsewhere in Syria. That is the pattern. They managed to get away with it. The West had stood by and allowed this. They allowed it in Syria, and uh, they have reacted uh, very late and very ineffectively so far in the case of uh, of Ukraine. There could be a miraculous turning around. Uh, there could be a demoralization of the Russian forces. Uh, the Ukrainians could inflict the kind of damage which will arouse uh, sufficient oppos opposition inside Russia, and then combined with the sanctions that are being leveled now, that might have the kind of impact that could force Vladimir Putin possibly to negotiate in good faith because so far he has been negotiating utterly in bad faith. But it depends largely on what the Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainians are able to do. And yes, undoubtedly the Ukrainians will try to resist, uh, but a population needs food, it needs water, it needs mm. heat. Uh, the Russians have attacked a pipeline now, a uh, major heating pipeline in, in Kiev. Um, they are running short of food and of medicine in Kharkiv. And uh, this kind of siege eventually can grind a population under. And the, the Russians are using uh, weapons that have been banned. There's evidence, uh, according to certain sources, that they've already used cluster munitions. And there is word that they may be taking in what are called vacuum bombs, which are absolutely right. devastating and are banned. And we have to see how far Vladimir Putin is willing to go. All right. I just want to ask you one more question. We've only got a few seconds left. How is this playing in Russia now? How is Russian citizen reviewing this? Re uh, how is Russian citizen reviewing this at day seven? Most of them are not getting the information. The state controls yeah. virtually all of the media. They have shut down opposition media like uh, Echo Moscovy, the radio station. Uh, some information is, is getting through. There has been some dissent. Navalny has spoken up. But the, the Russian-controlled media is painting a rosy picture 
where basically the Russians are liberators fighting a neo-Nazi government, uh, and therefore this is a war of defense. They don't even call it the war, they call it the special action. Hmm. R.L. Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Oral, as always, fascinating topic. Thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. He's coming in after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Love the song. I, I've been trying for weeks now to get my wife to change the ringtone on her phone for when I call to go to that one, but she's, you know, holding out. To go to Big Boss Man specifically? <laughs> Why not? Why not? You know, announce yeah. to your friends who's calling, right? That's right. Yeah, forget Don't about the A-side. All- forget about the A-side or the B-side. We're going to a deep-cut classic here. Yeah, though um, I think everybody knows who the Big Boss really is, so it would be more of a sarcastic thing. But anyway, we, we all know how that works. All right, so fascinating discussion I had today with Mike Craig, NHL Senior Manager, Facilities Operations, telling us how they turn uh, Tim Hortons Field into an ice rink, uh, an NHL regulation ice rink. Of course, uh, March 13th and 14th, Leafs and Buffalo, and then the next day, Bulldogs and Oshawa Generals. What a fascinating discussion about how they do this. And the neat thing is, is they've done this like 35 times now, so they have it literally down to a science. It's it's incredible to to hear. It is. It is, and and I don't know if you got to talk to him about this guy i was working away and didn't get to hear you talk to him but um the very first one they did which was in edmonton back in i don't know 10 12 years ago edmonton in montreal uh it was so cold that day like unbelievably anyone who was there will remember the first heritage classic that it that the ice was too cold which sounds like an oxymoron but it was cracking yeah chunks of the ice were breaking out and they were worried that the glass around the rink was going to shatter because it was just <laughs> so stinking cold that day but you know what? And then remember the next year, they had that game in Buffalo, uh, the Sabres and the Penguins. The Penguins wore those beautiful blue, powder blue shirts, and they had the snow falling and everything. Yeah, yeah. And like, it was amazing because the first two or three of these things, they had completely different conditions for everyone. And now, you're right, now they've got this thing, because of all the experimenting and everything, they've got this thing down to a science. I mean, it could... They've had a game in L.A. a few years ago at Dodger Stadium. Kiss played, I remember, in the Inter-Pacindian yeah. admission. And it was like 75 degrees. It didn't matter. The ice was fine. The ice was fine. It's so amazing to me that it's a bigger problem to be way too cold for good ice than it is for it to be like 75 degrees. And still a lot of it is old school in the sense that I, you know, I said to him, when can you drive the Zamboni on? He goes, no, still the majority of it's flooded by hand right up until game time. And, and, and a lot of it is still, you know, with the, with, with the, uh, you know, obviously the, the difference of the technology underneath the sub flooring of it all. It's, it's the basic, you know, you, you get out there and you flood it and, uh, and, and you just do it bit by bit by bit by bit, which is incredible. It is uh, it is slightly beyond the old Walter Gretzky backyard rink at this point. Yes, I, I'm thinking slightly. Mike Craig has a really good uh, outfit in his backyard going. You know, probably better Wouldn't than what Jay McQueen so? has time. Wouldn't you think so? <laughs> exactly. you, you would hope so. But when I was a kid, I don't know if your dad or mom or whatever ever. Did. Oh yeah. When I, was, when I was very young, I could, I don't remember really, but I've got pictures. And I'll tell you, uh, my dad was out there and he made the rink. Now it was the world's smallest rink, but we didn't have a big backyard. But he was out there and he made it and. You know, my dad was not a, you know, an outdoor hockey rink kind of building yeah. guy, but he did it because, you know, he wanted me to have a rink. I, I, I bet there's a lot of people. I don't know how many now, 
some still, but I, I bet you if you go back far enough, there's an awful lot of people who would have a similar story of, you know, yeah, dad made a rink out there. It wasn't great. It was bumpy. Um, well, I was shot, just about to say to you, I was just about to say to you, that was the big difference. Cause now, and, and, you know, there's, there's been people when, when uh, Kurt was younger and, and they were all playing, there was people that had pretty good setups in our neighborhood when the weather was, was good enough. But now it's, you know, you put down the, you know, the piece of plastic and it's sort of like a little pool thing. Uh, but back in the day, no, dad just kind of shoveled it out as level as he could and then got out the garden hose and just started freezing the whole thing and i remember that it was like it was like skating across a parking well no a parking lot would have been way smoother but yeah, yeah like without that rink. yeah like <laughs> and i'll tell you a funny story i know you're short on time but a friend a neighbor of ours like a few blocks over our, our best friends live not far from us and they live on a corner um and uh like an l-shaped street but there's no stop sign anyway uh, a neighbor on the inside of the L, if you can picture it, was yeah. trying to build a rink in their backyard, and they had the boards up, like the six-inch boards with the plastic and everything, and filled yeah. like how many hundreds of gallons of water <laughs> exactly. on a freezing cold day, and all of a sudden, there was a slight angle to the backyard yeah. where it was coming down towards the house. Well, the board on the side of the street gave out, <laughs> oh, no. and like hundreds of gallons of water, and now it's pouring onto the road. Yeah. When it's freezing cold and the cars are going to be coming around the road and hitting this giant patch of ice. The rink was great on the road. But uh-huh. now they've got people yeah. blocking the street and putting salt down and everything so they didn't cause someone to drive into someone's living room. I remember we had a I remember we had a guy behind us, but a few houses down, same thing, and then in the spring it starts to thaw and he just <laughs> yeah. pulls the cork. And he you know, it's like you can't just pump it into your backyard. You gotta go down like you're emptying a pool. You gotta put it into your driveway and down the draining system. And he flooded out like two or three neighbors their backyards <laughs> right behind him. It's like what the hell are you doing, pal? You can't yeah, just let it go laugh, into the but we're yeah. not the neighbor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm hearing you. All right, uh Scott Radley coming up uh, after the six o'clock news and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.